many of which are delivered to us in typical language. While therefore the gospel church standeth upon a joint foundation of apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. Ephesians 2.20 She never can be supposed to let drop one of her turns of communion. A tenacious adherence to the Old Testament as a part of the rule of her faith and practice, or to treat it like a thing of inferior importance, as the manner of some is. Convinced of the self-evidencing power, intrinsic worth, and divine excellencies of the Holy Scriptures, we ever wish them to be considered as a complete and sufficient rule in themselves, independent of oral law, tradition of the fathers, or any human invention whatever and in opposition to the absurd notion that the true sense depends upon the church. At the same time, in our particular application of the inspired oracles, we consider them to be the rule as consistently understood and properly applied. For though they be an absolutely perfect and sufficient rule in themselves, yet it is possible to mistake their true meaning. But thus we endeavor to guard against the conduct of those who, while they pretend to believe in the divine authority of the scriptures, do meanwhile evidently rest them, imposing glosses which make one part of the sacred volume to contradict another, and which lead us away from the true scope and design of the whole. On Article 2 the second article of our terms requires an owning of the doctrines contained in the Westminster Confession of Faith and Catechisms. On this also we shall endeavor to give unto those who ask us a reason of the hope that is in us, with meekness and fear. It is only after mature deliberation, carefully comparing them with the Word of God, and receiving full conviction in our own minds of their being wholly founded upon it, that we consider the confession and catechisms or any other human composure whatever as properly entitled to our belief and deserving to be ranked amongst the subordinate standards of our church. But after being convinced of their agreeableness to the infallible rule, we cheerfully receive them. It is not with the remotest intention of supplying a defect in the oracles of truth which we ever consider as a complete rule in themselves, nor is it at all in the view of putting either the Confession or any other book in the world on a level with the Bible that we adopt these explanatory standards, but purely to ascertain the true meaning of Scripture, help us to understand one another in our church fellowship, and through these mediums to transmit a faithful testimony for truth from generation to generation abundantly satisfied that they are remarkably useful for such purposes. We bless the Lord that ever we have had opportunity to adopt them. The Confession and Catechisms, especially considering the distant period at which they were compiled, are perhaps the best guarded and the most accurately expressed composition to be found in our language. Yet we do not view our general and sincere approbation of even the whole doctrines contained in them as necessarily involving the idea that every word is the best chosen, or every expression so properly guarded as it might have been, had the authors known what objections were to be raised against them. 
But we do not wish to make these eminent men of God offenders for a word or single incautious expression when we have had the fullest and plainest evidence for their real intention and leading design. If any detached expressions in these standards should, at first sight, seem to be at variance with the doctrines taught in other parts of the same book, or with the plain and openly avowed sentiments, as well as the uniform practice of the compilers on all other occasions, we consider the law of Christian charity as strongly binding us to explain the dubious-like expressions by the plain and uniform doctrines of the same men, rather than to force our own meaning on the particular expressions at the expense of making them contradict the clear and obvious doctrines, more fully illustrated in other parts of these authors' writings. Unless we go to work in this manner, no human composure of any considerable extent could ever pass without severe censure. Denied the benefit of this rule, many of the modern publications in favor of Christian forbearance might, and with far less straining too than what is often employed in torturing our concessions, be pressed into the service of absolute skepticism and confusion. Yea, by taking hold of detached expressions and refusing or neglecting to compare one place with another, the Holy Bible itself might soon be compelled to blaspheme, as hath frequently indeed been the case, while it has been in the hands of infidels and gross heretics. To these standards themselves, and to our terms of communion requiring approbation of them, it has been objected that they contain a discussion of the ordinance of civil government and require Christians to take an active part in both the erection and management of it. Whereas civil government being an ordinance of man and versant about the affairs of this life properly belongs to the men of the world. Christians therefore being called out of the world and sustaining the character of strangers and pilgrims should mine objects of a spiritual nature and never interfere with an institution of this kind. To this we answer, it is indeed a glorious truth that the Christian is, by the grace of God, called out of the world lying in sin, and is instructed to attend to matters of far superior importance than things terrain. But it is equally certain that the new situation in which religion places him neither deprives him of any rights nor forbids the discharge of any duties which belong to him as a man. It only qualifies him the better for the right management of these. In one sense, he is so a man of the world, being necessarily conversant about the affairs of this life, while obliged to form plans and labor for his temporal support. Connected in this manner with the world, and united with fellow men, he is of course induced to consult for the security of his person and property, which necessarily leads him to adopt the order of civil government. And when, like a Christian, he opens his Bible to see what instructions on a subject of this kind he may derive from it, he there finds the sacred plan clearly laid before him, the ordinance of civil government delineated in its divine original and ends accomplishing at once the great purposes of security to person and property, the cultivation of morals, and the advancement of piety, 
together with the sovereign command of its divine author to act accordingly. Thou shalt provide out of all the people able men such as fear God, men of truth, hating covetousness, and place such over them. If then ye have judgments of things pertaining to this life, set them to judge who are least esteemed in the church. Exodus 18.21 1 Corinthians 6.4 Is it not to Christians that these and similar passages of Scripture are addressed? And doth not the addressing of them thus on the great subject of civil government show the very intimate connection which they have with it in all its concerns? But if so be the case, it can never be placed to the score of error for these concessions to attribute unto a Christian people the right and duty of interfering with the ordinance of civil government. Nor can their doing so be reckoned inconsistent with the character of strangers and pilgrims on the earth. It has also objected that these standards do not preserve the necessary distinction between church and state, and consequently grant to the civil magistrate by far too much power in ecclesiastical matters. This mistake, it is supposed, hath arisen from not sufficiently attending to the difference between the Old and New Testament dispensations. But it should be remembered that a sinful and improper connection between church and state could never be sanctioned by the God of infinite perfection, neither under one dispensation nor another. It will be no salvo to tell us that the carnal ordinances of the ceremonial law were once authorized by God himself, and yet it would be highly improper to observe them now. These, as we have already said, were shadows of good things to come, and therefore, whenever the substance was enjoyed, could be no longer needed. But they were all innocent. None of them surely were anti-Christian, sinful, and absurd in their nature, as the connection in question is often pronounced to be. That the Church is a free and distinct religious society, independent of any civil magistrate on earth, receiving all her laws from Christ alone, required to convene, adjourn, and dissolve all her assemblies from the highest to the lowest, in no other name than his, and taught to transact all her affairs in virtue of that authority which is derived from him as her alone head and Lord, we firmly believe. It is also our fixed persuasion that no magistrate upon earth hath any judging, prescribing, dispensing, or controlling power, either in or over the Church of Christ, strictly considered in her ecclesiastic capacity. Nor have we yet seen any inconsistency between this and at the same time teaching, as we ordinarily do, that amongst the people favored with the Word of God, bearing the Christian name, and having reached high attainments in state reformation, it is requisite for the magistrate openly to profess and practice the true religion exclusively, not indeed as a thing to be judged by him according to his own fancy, but as already clearly judged and prescribed for him and his subjects both by the unerring standard of that lawgiver 
who is the Sovereign Lord of both his and their conscience. If the negligence of others and concurring circumstances require, we reckon it also the part of the magistrate, possessing a holy zeal for the declarative glory of God, to excite the ministers of religion to do their duty, by meeting together in their assemblies and diligently transacting the affairs of the church according to their Lord's prescriptions. But the magistrate must not, upon any consideration whatever, interfere with their work when met any other way than by protecting, defending, and encouraging them in carrying it forward, and being himself present, if he please, to satisfy his own mind that they are acting according to the law of God, but judicially to pronounce any sentence or authoritatively to call, adjourn, or dissolve them in his own name, he hath no power in any case whatsoever. We consider it also to be the magistrate's province, formally and openly, to declare his approbation of the church's righteous decisions and his resolution to employ the authority and influence attaching unto his exalted station for carrying these into effect. We are likewise of opinion that the magistrate may warrantably punish gross outward acts of vice and immorality in general, whether they be transgressions of the first or of the second table of the moral law. Still, however, we apprehend that all this may be said and done without any improper blending of civil and religious things. It is observable that even under the Old Testament, which in these matters at least is now considered by many as entirely out of the question, the church and state were, by divine appointment, perfectly distinct. They had distinct judicatories, a civil and an ecclesiastical Sanhedrin. The respective office bearers were easily known and distinguished. Judges and officers in the state priests and Levites in the church. The causes tabled before their respective courts and submitted to their decisions were different, civil matters in the one and religious in the other. The pains and censures which they severally inflicted were also dissimilar. Corporal punishments in the state, suspension from privileges and excommunication in the church, the rulers in the one were positively prohibited then, as well as now, from interfering with the work belonging to the rulers in the other. Hence that very explicit doctrine, Behold, Amari, the chief priest, is over you in all the matters of the Lord, and Zebediah, the son of Ishmael, the ruler of the house of Judah, for all the king's matters. And that severe reprimand addressed to even a righteous king of Judah. It appertaineth not unto thee, Uzziah, to burn incense unto the Lord, but to the priests, the sons of Aaron, that are consecrated to burn incense. Second Chronicles 19.11 and 26.18 Even under this dispensation, we see civil and religious things must be kept quite distinct. It is indeed expected that the office bearers in both departments shall profess the true religion, 
act in the fear of the Lord and cooperate in the prosecution of the same great and general object, the glorifying of God upon earth. But they must do it by acting each in his own proper sphere, taking good heed that the one never intermeddle with that which properly belongs to the province of the other. Our reforming forefathers, in Scotland especially, clearly perceived this distinction and were very careful to have it observed, even in what is ordinarily called the first period of the Reformation. Let them speak for themselves. The power and policy ecclesiastical, say they, is different and distinct in its own nature from that power and policy which is called civil power. Albeit, they be both of God and tend to one end if they be rightly used, namely to advance the glory of God and to have godly and good subjects. The civil power is called the power of the sword and the other the power of the keys. The magistrate commandeth external things for external peace and quietness amongst the subjects. The minister handleth external things only for conscience cause. The magistrate handleth external things only and actions done before men, but the spiritual ruler judgeth inward affections and external actions in respect of conscience by the word of God. The civil magistrate craves and gets obedience by the sword and other external means, but the ministry by the spiritual sword and spiritual means. The magistrate neither ought to preach, minister the sacraments, nor execute the censures of the kirk, nor yet prescribe any rule how it should be done, but command the ministers to observe the rule commanded in the word, and punish the transgressors by civil means. The ministers exercise not the civil jurisdiction, but teach the magistrate how it should be exercised according to the word. The magistrate ought to assist, maintain, and fortify the jurisdiction of the kirk. The minister should assist their princes in all things agreeable to the word, provided they neglect not their own charge by involving themselves in civil affairs. And again, the commissioners of the kirk, addressing themselves to the king, very plainly tell him, although the persons of men are subject to your majesty and the civil judges when they offend against your laws, yet in matters merely ecclesiastical and concerning conscience, no Christian prince can justly claim or ever claimed such a power to judge, seeing the prince in this behalf is but a member of the kirk, and Christ only the head, who only hath power to give laws in matters of conscience to confound the jurisdictions, civil and ecclesiastical, is that thing wherein all men of good judgment had justly found fault with the Pope of Rome, who claimeth to himself the power of both the swords. Concerning the King's Act, annulling the excommunication of a Mr. Robert Montgomery, they observe to pronounce the sentence of excommunication against impenitent sinners or absolve them from the same, or to discern the same, 
effectual or not effectual, can no more pertain to the prince or any civil magistrate than to preach the word and minister the sacraments, for they are both in like manner committed by Christ our Master to the true office bearers within his kirk, when, as he said, tell it to the church, and so on. The famous Mr. James Melville, in his reasons for not subscribing an Erastian right issued by the King and Parliament, Anno 1584, and required to be subscribed by the ministry, hath these remarkable words when expostulating with those who had subscribed. Ye have taken away the lawful power by your subscriptions of pastors, doctors, and elders of the Kirk, which they have to convene in the name and authority of Christ, the only sovereign ruler and commander of his Kirk, for discharging of their duties and callings, which he hath laid on them, to be used for his service and salvation of the souls of his people. And truly, as well might they have discharged the conventions for hearing the word and ministration of the sacraments, as for the exercise of discipline and government of the kirk. Seeing the one is no less laid upon the back of the officers of Christ's kingdom, as a special part of their duty and charge, than the other, and they have the command and power to use the one no less than the other, without waiting for any authority or command of men. As freely as the king hath in his power and authority of God the Creator to discharge his office in things civil and temporal, as freely have pastors, doctors, elders, and deacons in the kirk power and authority from Christ their mediator to do their office in things heavenly and spiritual. Doctrine marking a very clear distinction between church and state. His brother, Mr. Andrew Melville, in like manner, addressing himself to the king in a private conference between him and some ministers, makes bold to tell his prince, Sir, there are two kings and two kingdoms. There is Christ and his kingdom the Kirk, whose subject King James the Sixth is, and of whose kingdom he is not a king, nor head, nor lord, but a member, and they whom Christ hath called and commanded to watch over his Kirk, and govern his spiritual kingdom, have sufficient authority and power from him so to do, which no Christian king nor prince should control nor discharge, but fortify and assist. The two first of these extracts speak the sentiments of the ancient church of Scotland, collectively considered in her public representatives, and the two last the sentiments of two valiant witnesses for the royal prerogatives of Christ, individually considered, but who, at the same time, spoke the language of many others whose testimony could be produced were it necessary. If we descend to the ever-memorable second period of the Reformation when our subordinate standards were composed, we will find the distinction between church and state very clearly taught and sanctioned by the highest authorities in both the civil and religious departments. 
The Parliament of Scotland, February 7, 1649, enact and ordain that before the king who now is be admitted to the exercise of his royal power, he shall, among other things, consent and agree that all matters civil be determined by the parliaments of this kingdom, and all ecclesiastic matters by the general assembly of this kirk. And it is well known that when the king's commissioner presumed to exercise an Erastian power over the church by taking upon him in his majesty's name and authority to dissolve that famous assembly of the Church of Scotland which sat at Glasgow in the year 1638, they solemnly protested against that glaring encroachment on the royal prerogatives of Christ, the alone King of Zion, boldly asserted the Church's liberties as a distinct, free, and independent spiritual kingdom, and went forward with their work in the face of the royal proclamation and many other daring threatenings issued out against them. In the hundred and eleven propositions drawn up by order of the General Assembly, 1645, our reformers declare, the civil power and the ecclesiastic ought not, by any means, to be confounded or mixed together. Accordingly, they go on, with much judgment and accuracy, to draw the line of distinction between the two, and a considerable number of particulars. Add to these the express doctrine of the standards themselves. The Lord Jesus, as King and Head of His Church, hath therein appointed a government in the hand of church officers distinct from the civil magistrate. Agreeable to this, the London ministers assert, as the church and state are distinct polities, so have they subjects, laws, and officers, distinct always in the formal conception, though materially in diverse things they may agree. A preacher and a judge are two distinct callings. In like manner, the Scots commissioners, when they were sent to treat with the king, amidst the public disturbances in 1639, and were asked what they particularly wanted, requested, amongst other things, that all matters ecclesiastical might be determined by the assemblies of the church, and matters civil by parliament. Should any still venture to affirm that our worthy reformers had no just ideas of the distinction between church and state, but inconsiderately blended these together, they must do it at the expense of manifesting their ignorance or deep-rooted prejudice or both. To teach that magistrates and ministers should both be qualified according to the word of God, professing the true religion and using their best endeavors in their respective stations to promote the declarative glory of God amongst men is one thing and to teach that the one of these powers may warrantably interfere with the business of the other is quite another thing. The former was done by our forefathers, but to the latter they would never subscribe, reckoning it rather their duty to resist unto blood, striving against sin. Nor is it inconsistent with this for them to say that the magistrate hath authority and it is his duty to take order that unity and peace be preserved in the church, that the truth of God be kept pure and entire, 
and so on, and to grant that he hath power to call synods, to be present at them, and to provide that whatsoever is transacted in them be according to the mind of God. Let the whole paragraph be taken in connection. It begins with positively refusing to the magistrate any right to assume to himself administration of word and sacraments, or the power of the keys of the kingdom of heaven, i.e., he must by no means interfere with either the doctrine and worship or the discipline and government of Christ's house. Consequently, they never dreamed of allowing him to sit as judge upon any of these. No, he is only to take particular notice that those things which are already judged and determined by the law of the God of heaven and in conformity to that law agreed upon by the church's representatives be all faithfully observed in their proper place. Let the passages of scripture cited in proof be carefully attended to, and they making the meaning clear as noonday. In these passages, those that were over the king's matters are expected to keep in their own sphere, while those priests and Levites who were over the matters of the Lord are required to observe the province which the God of the church hath appointed for them. Good Jehoshaphat, on this memorable occasion, assumes no judging or legislative power, at least in church matters, but merely prompts and excites the whole office bearers in both departments conscientiously to discharge the important duties of their respective stations, according to the rules already prescribed by God himself. In this sense, surely a Christian magistrate may safely take order that whatsoever is commanded by the God of heaven be diligently done for the house of the God of heaven. Suppose that an honorable master, having a great number of servants in different capacities under his authority, were to appoint for some of them a certain piece of important work, and pointedly to prescribe the whole plan to be scrupulously observed in carrying it forward but at the same time were to require another servant to take notice that they faithfully observe their Lord's prescriptions. We would not certainly from that conclude that the person takes such oversight for the time was the proper judge how the work was to be done, or the author of the regulations to be observed by the performers of it. The application to the case before us is abundantly obvious. As to the magistrate's power of calling synods and being present at them, all reformers explain themselves in the 51st of the above-mentioned propositions. The magistrate, say they, calleth together synods, not as touching those things which are proper to synods, but in respect of the things which are common to synods, with other meetings and civil public assemblies, i.e., not as they are assemblies in the name of Christ to treat of matters spiritual, but as they are public assemblies within his territories. But even supposing it should be rather a stretch for our assembly to signify, as they do in their act at Edinburgh, August 27, 1647, that the necessity of occasional assemblies should first be remonstrated to the magistrate 
by humble supplication before the church use her intrinsic power in calling them. Yet why torture a single unguarded expression, seeing in the very same sentence they plainly teach that it is free for the church to assemble together synodically, as well pro reinata as at the ordinary times, by the intrinsical power received from Christ, as long as it is necessary for the good of the church so to assemble. Besides, it was evidently their intention by this act to preserve on their part the amicable correspondence which should ever exist between church and state, and at the same time to prevent the odium which might otherwise attach to their meetings in these troublous times, as though they were designed to promote some seditious plans which they wish to conceal from the present government. The subordinate standards of which we speak, especially our solemn covenants, are also charged with favoring compulsory measures, even in matters purely religious. And hence it is supposed that our reformers did not properly understand the rights of private judgment, nor the proper spirit of our Savior's doctrine that his kingdom is not of this world. Neither this nor the above mentioned are new objections. All of them and many others besides were urged, if not with greater, at least with as much plausibility as they are now, more than a hundred years ago. They were also very ably answered by the reformers themselves, though many of the publications on that subject are now to be obtained with difficulty, and some of them not at all. It is given as a character of the upright man that he will not be readily disposed even to take up a reproach against his neighbor. Psalm 15.3 But it is a matter of regret in our time that many will swallow with greediness bold and totally unfounded assertions in opposition to the covenants and work of reformation. While they will scarcely grant a hearing to strong and incontestable proof in their favor. If one speaking at random should tell them our reformers were for propagating their religion by fire and sword, they went about with the covenants in the one hand and the sword in the other, giving men their choice. At once the malicious tale is believed Opinions and principles are formed upon it, though all the while a grosser calumny never existed. Our reformers, in the possession of their religious as well as civil liberties, taught the propriety of defending themselves by arms when they were wickedly attacked and attempts made to rob them of their valuable rights. But the doctrine of actively propagating religion by the sword they were totally strangers. Let not our law condemn any man before it hear him, lest the heathen themselves rise against us in the judgment. With regard to the National Covenant of Scotland, respectable men of indefatigable industry and unwearied research have solemnly declared that after a laborious investigation they could find no proper evidence that any force was ever used in Scotland to make any take the covenant, except in 1639 by Montrose and Monroe, two military men 
without any warrant from church or state. These two officers, whose zeal in this affair was not according to knowledge, and who acted beyond their commission, afterwards appeared in their true colors as dangerous enemies to the work of reformation. But the unwarranted act of an individual or two can never be justly charged upon the great body, openly and honestly disavowing all such conduct. Messrs. Henderson, Dixon, and Kant, these eminent servants of Christ, distinguished in 1638 by their public spirit in valiantly promoting the covenanted interest, make free to assert, no ministers in our knowledge have been either forced to flee or have been threatened with the want of their stipends for refusing their subscription. Arguments have been taken from promised augmentation of stipends to hinder subscription. Fear of worldly loss rather hinders men to subscribe than scruples of conscience. In this day of the Lord's power, His people have most willingly offered themselves in multitudes like the dew of the morning. Others of no small note have offered their subscriptions and have been refused till time should try their sincerity from love to the cause and not from the fear of man. No threatenings have been used except of the deserved judgments of God, nor force except the force of reason, from the high respects which we owe to religion, to our King, to ourselves, and to our posterity. Speaking of the remarkable cheerfulness with which the covenant was almost universally subscribed in 1638, says a pious writer on the subject, they resolved upon renewing the national covenant, which had been almost buried for forty years before. Being read in churches, it was heartily embraced, sworn and subscribed by all ranks, with many tears and great joy, so that the whole land, great and small, a very few accepted, without any compulsion from church or state, did in a few months cheerfully return to their ancient principles and subject themselves to the oath of God for reformation. On this memorable occasion, we see compulsory measures were neither needed nor employed. After the Treaty of Berks in 1639, when the king complained that the Scots still kept up unlawful meetings who pressed the subjects daily to adhere to the covenant. Lord Loudon answered that no meetings were kept up by them but such as were agreeable to the Acts of Parliament, and although they behooved to adhere to their covenant as most necessary and lawful, yet they averred that none had, to their knowledge, been urged to subscribe it. As the king at this time strongly urged the abjuring of the covenant, our worthy reformers, considering its obligation as indissolvable, judged it seasonable when necessity pointed out the duty of trying who were friends or foes to offer the covenant for subscription to such of the lords of session as had not already subscribed it. The result was that the most of them refused it. Yet even these historians, who are well known to disapprove of the covenant, cannot so much as pretend that ever the least violence was offered to the recusants. 
Yea, as our author, this had been a particular contradiction to what the covenanters had all along declared. Are these the men who wish to propagate the religion of Jesus by the sword of steel? In the progress of the Reformation, our noble ancestors still declare themselves the friends of that properly bounded liberty, wherewith Christ hath made his people free. The express words of the standards themselves are, God alone is Lord of the conscience, and hath left it free from the doctrines and commandments of men, which are in anything contrary to the word, or beside it, in matters of faith or worship. They evidently consider God alone as the sovereign Lord of the conscience, and at the same time the conscience of every man is subject to his righteous law. Accordingly, whenever the public regulations of either church or state are actually brought to this unerring rule, fully demonstrated to be agreeable unto it, and not only so, but also solemnly ratified by the mutual consent of the representatives in either department, then all become obliged to conform, not in virtue of some men's claim to exercise lordship over the conscience of others, but in virtue of the divine authority speaking through the medium of scriptural regulations. In virtue of that mutual consent by which these regulations were adopted, and in virtue of that responsibility not only to God, but also to one another, which is inseparable from the very existence of all society, whether civil or ecclesiastic. After this, for individuals or malignant factions, under the pretense of conscience and the right of private judgment, to rise up in open rebellion against the established authorities is evidently to fight not only against men, but against God himself. This was exactly the case in those troublous times when the Confession and Covenants were composed. And it is to men of this description that our worthy reformers refer when in the fourth section of this same chapter they say, Because the powers which God hath ordained and the liberty which Christ hath purchased are not intended by God to destroy but mutually to uphold and preserve one another, they who, upon pretense of Christian liberty, shall oppose any lawful power or the lawful exercise of it, whether it be civil or ecclesiastical, resist the ordinance of God. Such are the persons who, they say, may lawfully be called to account and proceeded against by the censures of the church and by the power of the civil magistrate. It is in this sense, likewise, that our testimony is to be understood when it approves a proceeding against some atrocious offenders, not only by church censures, but also by the power of the magistrate. That both the civil and the ecclesiastical authority of that time agreed to have the covenants enforced by civil as well as ecclesiastical pains, is not refused. But let the case be truly stated, and it is hoped that the seeming inconsistency of this will soon vanish. The public calamity under which the nation then groaned was twofold. 
strong opposition to the true Reformed religion was openly professed in the church and malignant plotting against the fundamental laws and liberties of the state. Both these evils were combined in the malicious conduct of many restless and formidable factions in the land. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.